Amen. Here's my topic today. The blood of Jesus, does it still matter? And you know, I realize that the title itself, in some ways, is not the best chosen title. Because the title would be implying that it's possibly up for discussion. But yet I picked this title because, you know, it's become a common theme, I think, or a lack of a theme concerning the blood of Jesus. And I wondered why is it maybe that we don't talk so much about the blood of Jesus as maybe at other times or as the scripture does. And there's basically two reasons why. Some people, some preachers would say, well, in today's society, you know, people are not accustomed to blood sacrifices. It was different in societies where people had blood sacrifices to appease some supposedly angry deity. And then when the message came that Jesus is the final sacrifice, of course, it was received with great joy. Tyna and I recently had the opportunity to visit uh, southern Mexico, and we went to uh, Chichen Itza, which is one of the great cities of the Mayan people, and they were very advanced scientifically, knew a lot about astronomy and about our planets, but they were a civilization that practiced a lot of blood sacrifices, human sacrifices. You wonder why did they do that? Well, they believed that this was a way to control angry deities. So we say, well, we don't have that. We live in urban environments today, and then some people would say, well, the whole idea of blood, you know, people faint when they see blood. You know, even in a rural community, on the farm, if you were raised on your farm, you might see a, a chicken being killed and you had to pluck it and prepare it. But now you go to the grocery store, and I'll tell you that chicken hasn't got a speck of blood on it. It's just sitting there like it came out of a chicken factory. I suppose the closest way some people get to blood is when you order a steak and say, I want it rare, because you might see a little, little blood coming out there. And, and, and so people say, well, you know, people don't understand this idea of the blood of Jesus, and yet the Bible speaks so much about it. And of course, then preachers, by not speaking about it, add to the confusion. So that's why I had the title, Does It Still Matter? Well, I think I'm going to call it Why It Still Matters a Whole Lot. The book of Hebrews is a rich resource to us in this area, which was written about 30 to 35 years after Christ's crucifixion. It was written because the Hebrew believers in Jesus were under pressure uh, because there were some other very charismatic personalities in Israel at that time, and some people were drifting away from Jesus, and so they, they thought that maybe, maybe Jesus' sacrifice wasn't so great or so necessary, and so there was a temptation, and there was also societal pressure. And so the book of Hebrews was written to address that, and it really gives us a wealth of information about the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm just going to be able to get started today, but I want to give you some reasons why the blood of Jesus matters. Number one, the blood of, of Jesus matters because it speaks to us today. Hebrews 12, 24 says, the blood, referring to Jesus' blood, speaks of better things than that of Abel's. Now, Abel, those of you who know the scripture know that uh, Abel was the first victim of murder. He was murdered by his brother Cain, and it's a very interesting story, and it says that God said to Cain, the murderer, your brother's blood is crying out, it's speaking. 
And so Abel's blood, we might say, spoke of innocence, of being a victim, of injustice, and even it cried for vengeance. But it says Jesus' blood speaks, and it speaks of better things. You know, Jesus' blood doesn't speak of Jesus being a victim. No, Jesus was the victor. He won the victory. He defeated death and hell and won an everlasting victory for everyone. Uh, Jesus' blood was not crying for vengeance. It cries with love that you are included. You are the beloved of God. It doesn't speak of injustice. And for those of you who are new to our church, you know, when we think of justice, we mustn't think in terms of human justice because human justice is always about punishment. You know, you, you kind of allocate a proper judgment depending on the crime. But when you read the scriptures and you can put them in their context, justice from God's point of view is not allocating a suitable punishment, but to make things right. Everybody say to make things right. Say God wants to make things right for me. God loves justice. And so the blood of Jesus speaks of that God wants things to be right for you. Now, sometimes, you know, when we talk about the blood of Jesus, we get caught into, you know, is it literal? Is it symbolic? And if we talk about the communion and different parts of the Christian religion interpreted different ways, I don't want us to get hung up on symbolism versus literalism. Let me just say this. I believe, of course, that Jesus literally shed his blood. He literally died, was literally buried, and literally and physically rose again. But in that is also a deep metaphorical symbolic meaning. It's not just merely literal. It is metaphorically that you and I died our sins, our failures have been buried, and we are risen to a new life in Christ. Sometimes we Christians, you know, we get so caught up in the literal interpretation of the Bible that we miss the deeper symbolic meaning. And this could also happen in reference to the blood of Jesus. You know, people, Christians, and it's been very popular the last hundred years, probably partly because so many have questioned the Bible, that then Christians felt like a need to debate everything. You know, like, did God create the earth in six literal days or symbolic days? And we get into all that. And immediately you're thinking, well, Pastor, tell me what you think. Well, I'm not going to tell you today. I'll say that for another time. Uh, uh, we, we interpret it literally. You know, but I thought about that. You know, we're a little bit hypocritical in that. Because even those who emphasize everything should be interpreted literally, Actually, when they preach and teach it, they do it symbolically. For example, I, even churches who believe, really believe in the supernatural, I never hear the pastor say, well, next Sunday, I'm going to teach from the story when Jesus lay, raised Lazarus from the dead. And we're going to not have in our regular auditorium, we're going to meet in a funeral home because we're literally going to do this. I, I never had a, a literalist saying that, we, or, or say, well, I'm teaching next Sunday morning about Jesus walking on the water. We'll be meeting by Lake Ontario, and all of you will, because of we, we believe literally everything in the Word. No, when we preach those things, we talk about the grave clothes of Lazarus, 
speaking of religious bondage and bitterness maybe and tears and we talk about the storm on the Sea of Galilee being symbolic of, of all kinds of contrary voices and, and emotions and weaknesses within us about how Jesus is our victory. So I'm saying just a little, I know I'm digressing a little bit from my main topic, sometimes we get so caught up in the literal meaning that we miss the metaphorical, much deeper, powerful uh, truth that will help us to live. How many, how many want to understand the blood of Jesus from this deeper meaning? We are not arguing, for example, when it says the blood speaks, if you wanted to be an ultra-literalist, you would say that Jesus' blood had vocal cords. But I don't think anybody would propose that. We're saying it speaks symbolically. So when the Bible says that Jesus passed through the heavens with his blood and made a new and living way, you can feel whatever you want that what Jesus did on the cross was a final declaration. Or if you want to feel like Jesus carried a bottle of his own blood through the heavens like a rocket ship, whatever way you want to feel about it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that what Jesus did is incorruptible, indestructible. It stands forever for every person. Amen? So sometimes when we say, we plead the blood, what does that mean? We are just saying, I take everything that Jesus did, everything that's included in his death and resurrection, and I plead that. I appeal to that. I feel kind of rotten maybe. So I don't feel so good right now. I feel a little bit down. But instead of just giving myself to those feelings, I'm pleading what Jesus Christ has done. It's not some magical incantation that you walk around with a, with, with a crucifix and you, you just go like this. and you go like, No, no. You, you, you say, Jesus' blood, I sprinkle it. doesn't mean that you're literally sprinkling drops of blood. I sprinkle it on my heart so that I be free from an evil conscience. When thoughts come in my mind of condemning myself, putting myself down, that I'm unworthy, that God doesn't love me, then symbolically I think about everything Jesus did, and he did it for me. But now I take that, and I sprinkle it on my heart that I will be free from evil thoughts, and I can come boldly to God. Come on, somebody get excited about this. Let, let, me, let me give you a little bit more here. The blood matters because it puts an end to human effort to gain God's favor. Hebrews 10, 12 says, this man, this man, son of man, Jesus. You know, sometimes we get a little bit nervous when we refer to Jesus as the man. But uh, you can study the church fathers that I'm not on my own here. This is a very common way of speaking of Jesus. He is the son of man, and we have today one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So it was because Jesus became a man that he could save us. That salvation is not an, a, a spatial or from outer space rescue operation, but it's an inside job that Jesus came Beloved of God, chosen of God, declared to be the Son of God with power. He came inside, Emmanuel, inside the human race. And what the first Adam failed to do, the last Adam succeeded. So it's an inside job. So, so it says, I got to hurry. This man offered one sacrifice for sins forever. 
Now, if you came from one of those tribal areas or beliefs where you had blood sacrifices, of course, that would bring great joy to you. We're done with that. But for us today, you don't kill a goat in your kitchen every week and, and sprinkle blood all over. And most likely, you're not doing that. But maybe you're doing other things. You're doing other things to gain favor with God. Maybe God will look more favorable upon me if I do this and if I do that. And you try to always work the self-improvement. Now we hear that the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, it's for sins forever. There is no more sacrifice. It's once for everyone. Hebrews, let me keep reading the same chapter. Boldness to enter the holiest. Again, symbolic, symbolic. The holiest means to come to God, to be in God's presence. I come to, to God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. Something happened in the flesh of Jesus 2,000 years ago that is good for all eternity and is good for everyone. So I say again, cleanse your conscience with this. Have you ever felt bombarded in your conscience? Saying, oh, maybe God doesn't love me. And guilt comes and shame comes. And you feel, oh, I don't know. I can't even pray. I don't know. And you start feeling so bad about yourself. Well, then you think about this. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has cleansed from every sin. We take the communion. And what does the scripture says? This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed to remove sins. Hallelujah. So you sprinkle your heart with that and then you come. What does it say in the next verse? Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I come full of faith. I know that there's nothing separating myself and God. The veil has rent. I mean, you basically, I don't, we don't need to preach anymore with this kind of music. He's basically done it for us. The veil is rent. Nothing separates us from God's love. We see that. And so we come with full assurance. And our hearts sprinkle from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. Even when we were washed in water baptism, it was not just a formality. It was a recognition. I've died to the old life. And I'm risen to a new life. And really that new life is that Christ lives through me. I'm still me. I don't stop being me. I still have the same freckles. I still have the same nose. I still have the same chin. But in me there is Christ loving and speaking and giving faith in me. Oh, come on. You have full access to God. Here's going to be a good one there. Hang on, hang on. The blood matters because... It is the foundation for a good life. How many want a good life? I sure want a good life. Look at what it says in Hebrews 13. May the God of peace, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So where do I get this expression the good life, look at it, to be made complete. How many want to live a life that's complete? Where you even are aware in yourself, I'm complete. I'm sufficient. I have what it takes. And how many would like to have good work? You would like to do good things, meaningful things, things that are lasting. How many want to do his will? 
You want to do things pleasing to God. So to summarize all those things, to be complete, to, to have good works and God's will and all that thing, I said, I call that the good life. And how does that happen? It happens through the blood of the everlasting covenant. See, we have an everlasting covenant. You know, the Bible has many covenants, and we have touched on this many, many times. God made a covenant with Adam, but that covenant failed. It didn't fail because God couldn't follow through. It failed because Adam couldn't follow through. God made a covenant with Israel, and it was a good covenant, but it failed because, oh, God didn't fail, but Israel couldn't follow through. Same with the covenant with Noah. Then God made an everlasting covenant. And he said, this time I'm not going to make a covenant with Adam or Israel or one person. I'm going to make a covenant with mankind's humanity's perfect representative, Jesus Christ. The covenant between God and Adam was between God and mankind's imperfect representative. And it failed. But we have a perfect representative. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And so this new covenant, this everlasting covenant, is between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. And it cannot fail. Because in order to fail, God the Father would have to fail or God the Son would have to fail and they cannot fail and we are the beneficiaries. It's strictly speaking not a covenant between us and God. We are the beneficiaries of that covenant. Oh, come on now. That's beautiful. And so that's the foundation. That's the first thing you've got to get settled. We have an everlasting covenant. It is fail-proof. It is foolproof. It's the foundation. And on that foundation, oh, I, I am complete. I now know who I am. <laughs> I'm not a wandering stranger chasing after God. I have God living inside of me. I'm not some wreck by the side, some accident waiting to happen. I'm the beloved of God. Jesus showed me who I am. And on that foundation, I begin to see God's love, not just for me, but for the whole world. Able to make judgments and decisions and grow and have good works and know God's will. You, you, you see, I want to make a very strong point here that knowing the blood of Christ and the new covenant is the foundation for real discipleship. Sometimes people say like this Oh, they say, the Bible is the owner's manual. And you know, even when you get your Bible, a little section in some Bible says, if you're depressed, look here. If you lost a loved one, look here. If you're facing sickness, look here. If your boss is nasty, look here. If, if you don't like your pastor, look at this verse. If you don't feel like praying, look at this verse. You, you, how many have seen the Bible like that? And I understand it's well-intentioned. I don't know. I've never practiced that. I don't know what good it really does. You know, we have this idea that some preachers, you know, some pastors, there are many of them in our city, they like to give people answers for everything. I notice you would like me to do that for you also. I did a survey a few weeks ago, what are some of the tough questions you want your pastor, that would be my truly, or, or truly uh, Nathan Thurman, what do you want us to address? 
And frankly, what you want us to do is to solve all your problems. I, I discovered it. You want us to, to tell you that if your boss is nasty, how should you do it? You want us to tell you that if they're swearing at work, we should give you the, just, just open up the owner's manual. Let's look at the index. Swearing colleagues, where do we go for that? And, and if there's an abusive marital situation or a financial problem, you want me to tell you everything. And then you think that if I did come up with an answer, which I'm not, because there are hundreds of pastors who would love to do it. Because they need that. They need it for their ego to feel that you come and tell them your most intimate details. And then they, they as the man of God from on high, will descend from the prayer room and tell you exactly what you should do. It works for the congregation, and it works for the pastor. In the sense, the pastor feels, but I'm so important. And I, I have met pastors in churches where they tell me, pastor told me, people in our church, they, they, they don't go and buy a refrigerator. They talk to the elder. If they're buying a new car, then the elder can't handle it, has to come to me, the senior pastor. And they say, we, we practice discipleship in our church. Don't you practice discipleship in your church, Pastor Peter? See, they're trying to even make me feel guilty right now. Well, we practice real discipleship. And the real discipleship that you get every Sunday from Pastor Nathan and I is we keep building that strong foundation of the everlasting covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ to get you firmly established on that and then you'll be able to figure it out for yourself. Can I mess with you a little bit? People say to me sometimes, you know, the Bible has a lot of contradictions. You know what I say? Of course it does. Why? I mean, it has contradictions on purpose. Have you ever read the book of Proverbs? What's the book of Proverbs about? It's about wisdom, right? Get wisdom. It's worth more than rubies. It's worth more than diamonds. Get wisdom. Then you turn the page and you get to the next book. And in the first chapter of the next book, it says, oh, don't bother getting wisdom. It'll just bring you grief. Oh, it doesn't matter if you get wisdom or not. It'll all end up the same anyhow. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, I mean, God, I mean, if God wanted to make the Bible nice, like you would like your Bible to be like real nice, at least you could have put Proverbs in the beginning and Ecclesiastes at the end, so it's not so obvious the contradiction. Are you with me? Like, like, you have to put them back to back. You know, the, the, the word Israel in Hebrew means struggle with God. See, we want cookie-cutting answer, little, what is cookie-cutter, right? Yeah, and little answers, like, they're just kind of a, that's what you want your pastor to do, is, oh, I have such a wonderful pastor, such a man of God, he tells me everything what I should do. Flee from such a person. That's not discipleship. Can I make it worse since I'm messing with you already? Let's just go to the book of Proverbs. That's not even the answer book. Look, look what it says here. Proverbs 24, verse 4. Let's say you have a, someone at work who's always talking stupid things and saying stupid things about God. What does it say in Proverbs 26, 4? Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. So here you have the answer. Don't say a word at work, because you'll become like him. 
the one who is talking stupid. Right? There you have a clear answer. But then go to the next verse. Next verse. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You tell me that there's no contradictions in the Bible? I mean, I say, at least, Solomon, when you wrote Proverbs, if you're going to put two such totally opposing, contradictory statements, at least don't put them side by side. Because chances are between chapter 1 and chapter 31, I might fall asleep and I may not catch it. But even a person who's paying a bit of attention will notice that when it's two verses back to back with an obvious contradiction, it's there on purpose. Are you still here? You don't get this in every church. I'm just doing this for free. What is the Bible saying? There are no cute little answers to everything. Life is more complicated than this. So what do you do? Do you stand on the foundation of what Jesus has done? And sometimes when you hear nasty things spoken, you realize because you're standing on the blood of the everlasting covenant. You realize... For me to start to speak up right now, all I'm doing is getting tit for tat. I'm just, I, I just become like that person. You know, if you wrestle in the mud, you get muddy, right? <laughs> you wrestle with a pig, you'll smell like a pig. Come on now. So you say, no, you know, I'm not going to answer this. Other times, you say, that moron is saying stupid things. And by me sitting here quiet saying nothing, they think I'm a moron too. That's probably what Laura Lynn Thompson is going to talk about this afternoon. She had, to, she had to choose between these two verses. And she has chosen. And we're going to hear about it this afternoon. I'm going to pick verse 5 right now. She says, I'm going to say something because there's some moronic things happening. But we can't give this away. But that's what we always go. No, 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 no. Turn to your neighbors and say, life is not that simple. I am discipling you right now. I was going to say whether you want to or not. I'm discipling you right now. I'm saying this is real discipleship. I can't tell you. I mean, you should see all the questions I get. Should I smoke cannabis or not? I addressed that two weeks ago. I'm not going to go there right now. I, I, I get, oh, my, 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 my. People want the Bible answer man. Peter Youngren, the Bible answer man. Give me a quickie because I'm too, I'm too lazy to pray or think about Jesus. I, I just want you to tell me what to do so I know that you're a real man of God. I am a real man of God. I am discipling you on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That you stand on the foundation of the blood of the everlasting covenant. What is done for you. What is done for everybody else that you're mad at as well. Remember that part of it. That the blood of the everlasting covenant is not just what Jesus did for you. It's also what he did for that other person. Oh, come on now. And then you weigh that. And you struggle a little bit with that. Because you're a smart person. That was a good place to say amen. I said you're a smart person. Come on, stay with me. Uh, say I'm a smart person. I have Christ in me. And so you say, I'm weighing this. And you say, I'm praying now. And I thank you, Lord. Help me to see everything here through the light of the finished work of Jesus. 
and standing firm on that, the blood of the everlasting covenant, you will produce good works. And the decision you make will end up being pleasing in, in his sight. It may not be the exact same decision as somebody else, but you don't have to run their life. How many got enough running your own life? Come on now. And then God will work in you. And you know what, what happens when we stand on this? The blood of Christ, the blood of the everlasting covenant. covenant. First of all, we become less judgmental of ourselves. That's probably the first thing. Stop putting yourself down. God is for you. He's done something for you. Then, after we've enjoyed that for a while, we think, well, you know, if I don't want to put myself down too much, I shouldn't put others down either. That's where the love comes. That's where accepting one another comes. Come on. So, I better move on here now. Are you with me? Did you get that point? I have one more point here. The blood matters because it has power. Oh, my old Baptist and Pentecostal friends, you love that song. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Come on now. I love it too. It's, but, but how? Why? In what way is it power? Again, is it just a magic incantation? Oh, what is it? Well, let me give you a little background. Much could be said about that. We could talk for hours of it, about it. But basically, you have an accuser. You have an adversary. He likes to bring up all your faults in your mind, reminding you of everything you've done wrong. And really, you may look back and say, yeah, it was kind of stupid. And your adversary likes to remind you of that. That adversary is also called the liar and the father of lies. And so he takes past events or situations current or past and, and just paints them before you in a way that you will denigrate yourself, that you will feel, I'm too sinful, I'm too guilty, I'm too weak, I'm unlovable, how can God care for me? But you see, the blood of Jesus has power because it removed the adversary's ammunition. His bullets are gone. Jesus disarmed. They may still have a pistol without bullets waving around, but they have been disarmed principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. See, your adversary hates you because you are God's masterpiece of creation. And he would like for you to suffer the same fate he did. He says, well, I rebelled, and I got kicked out of heaven, I got judged. Those people should get it too. Shocking news. He's right. In one sense, we should all just, you know, be just dealt with according to whatever wrong we have done. But can I read a scripture? I got one more scripture verse. Are you ready for this one? Romans 3. Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a mouthful, so I'm not going to try to teach it word by word. Let me just say, the blood of Christ sets forth Jesus as the one who makes things just who makes things good again. 
He was willing to sacrifice everything for you. It proves he make things good for you. The blood demonstrates that God is righteous. You see, for many people in history, they could say, well, God didn't seem very righteous. They said that God had forbearance. He said, oh, there's all kinds of sins I'm not going to deal with. He winked at them, it says in, in Acts chapter 17. But then God says, my plan was all along to send one man, the one I had chosen, the anointed one, the Christ, the beloved, the Son of God, to send him. And through his blood, there would be a dealing with every sin and iniquity. There would be a handling of every shame. I put it this way. It may not be perfect. I wrote it out this morning, but put it on the PowerPoint. God, the eternal storehouse of love, declares Jesus to be the beloved son and the blood which flows through his open wounds as the means of the forgiveness of sins for the whole world. God demonstrated, I'm righteous. And I'm going to identify with your pain and your shame and your guilt. And I have ordained that the blood that flows through Jesus, it will stand forever. It can be applied forever. It can be pleaded forever. You are free. The guilt is gone. You, you know, it, it, some of you I know in our church, uh, because we're an international church, we have a lot of soccer fans here. Anybody here likes, you know, we've got a great soccer team here in Toronto. And uh, they won the cup last year. So come on now. Some of you don't even know that. We, we, we appreciate it. And so some of us come from backgrounds where we love soccer. You know, when you go over to Africa or Burma, these places I go, they're not watching ice hockey. I'm sorry, folks. They're watching soccer. Now, if you watch soccer, sometimes... Soccer players can be a bit phony. Have you ever seen them in the penalty area? They flip and they flop and they're trying to say, I was pushed and they want a penalty. I mean, they're a little bit phony. But then something happens. The ref comes with a red card. A yellow card is one thing. That's just a warning. The red card. Everybody say the red card. And as phony and hypocritical as sometimes these players seem when they are in the penalty area of the opposing team, I have never seen yet a player refuse the red card. You just stick that red card in their face, and it seems their anger drains, and they walk off the field obediently. You see where I'm going with this? We have a red card. <laughs> we have a red card. And that self denigration, that self-righteousness, that self-reliance, that, that guilt and that constantly weighing if you're good enough, it kind of tries to cheat its way into your mind and pop up all the time. And I would say to you, pull out the red card and say, you have no business. Get off this playing field. This playing field is my life. Bitterness, get out. Fear, get out. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. I stand on the blood of the everlasting covenant. Oh, this is good news. This is good news. All right. That's pretty good. That's pretty good in a short time. <laughs> you know, I want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to acknowledge Jesus for yourself. In a sense, you see, here's what happens. When our eyes are open to him, 
that this is not about religion or a certain you know, behavior, but that God dealt with human problems at its deepest level. And shame and guilt is about as deep as you can go. I suppose fear of death would come in on that same level. I mean, that, that's pretty deep. Those are things you don't even admit to others that you feel ashamed, you feel guilty, you fear of death. You don't want to talk about it. You're tough if you're a man. You're tough. You don't want to talk about it. A woman, maybe likewise. And when we find out that God has dealt with those deepest issues, all kinds of other issues that are more visible on the surface, such as stress and anxiety and anger and jealousy and retribution and, and you know, all, all those things. That we can see that, but we don't see that underneath all of that. Fear, shame, fear. I feel deep inside a little bit bad about myself, but I can't say that. Who would people think I am? So I do stop. That looks like I got another problem. But this is the real thing. God dealt with that. When we see that, that's what we call enlightenment. I saw that I, wow, God dealt with that. He took care of that. That's what the blood of Jesus is all about. It's not some ritual or some strange thing. No, he took care of it to show everyone, those cultures that practice blood sacrifices and those cultures that don't practice it like ours, to show that he, he did everything to include everyone. In a sense, when you receive salvation, in a sense, you're pulling out the red card. You're saying, I'm not going to live a half-life, half-life off my deal. I'm going to accept the full thing. I'm not going to live without knowing that I am loved. I put the red card up there that get out. I'm going to accept this, this love that loves me. This love that you've heard me preach about that we heard sung today. Maybe you missed the opening song. You know, in every church people come a little bit late, but you missed a good song at 1030. <laughs> but you've heard, I, I preach it through here about Sunday after Sunday. That the Father loved so much that he never even acknowledged what we call the sinner's prayer. Isn't he kind of... He didn't acknowledge it. He just kisses and hugs the young boy. He says, if you don't know, I'd like to say the sinner's prayer. Now, that'll impress God. God is love. And he's already impressed to love you, to love you. But, but, but your eyes open and you see that. Wow. Let's just bow our head right now for a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you for touching people's hearts. Thank you for new life. I thank you for the reality of what we have talked about today sinking into people's hearts. Just keep your head bowed for a moment. In a moment, I'm going to ask people to lift your hand just to give me a signal that you would like to be included in a prayer that we're going to pray, a prayer of receiving Jesus Christ, acknowledging, I should say, Jesus Christ. You say, I see how much God loves me. I don't want to live without that. I want to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's exactly what the Bible calls it. We pray to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He's Lord whether we think he is or not. But we acknowledge that he is who he is. And you see, when, when that happens, you receive an assurance. My sins are forgiven. Everything is all right. It's so beautiful. Maybe you feel like a little something is stirring in your heart. I believe that's the Holy Spirit moving on you to say, yeah, the 
Please accept the Lord. Every head bowed right now. How many would say, Peter, when you're going to pray this prayer, I would like to be included, and I don't mind to acknowledge that. Would you do that? Lift your hand way up high, all over the room. If you say, yes, I want to be included in this prayer. Lift them up all over the room right now. God bless you. God bless you over here. God bless you in the back. God bless you way in the back over here. God bless anybody else. All right, that's beautiful. There's several people. Yes, another person over there. God bless you, sir. God bless you, sir. All right. Let's ever, yes, more people over here as well. Let's all stand up right now. I'm going to ask everybody, those who lifted their hands, maybe half a dozen or so people, and I'm going to ask everybody else, would you join in this prayer and say like this, say, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father thank you for the good news. Thank you for the good news. How much God loves me. How much God loves me. Thank you for the new life. Jesus, I believe that you took my sins. You died in my place. And God raised Jesus from the dead. And now I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Thank you for living in me. That my sins are forgiven. I receive it. Amen. Give the Lord a big praise right now. Give the Lord a big praise. That's beautiful. Oh, come on. Stir it up. Stir it up. Come on up here, Tim. Come on up here, Tim. All right. Come on up. 